Tim said, my name's Paul. I'm one of the leaders here at the Zion Church. And we're going to be carrying on with our service on Terry Virgo's book, Life Tastes Better. Um, Tim did the first session last week, and I'm now going to do chapter two. It's a great book, <coughs> not least because if you're not a reader, it probably only takes about 20 minutes to read the whole thing. Um, it's very easy reading. It, not just It's not just because it's a thin book, but not very many pages, but actually Terry, as many of you know, is a great speaker, a really fantastic guy to listen to. If, as you read the book, certainly for me, I can hear his voice on every page, but he's kept it really nice and light and simple. And the focus of the book is the story of Jesus at the, wedi- at the wedding in Cana. And he goes to the wedding and... He's there with his disciples and his mother, and then they discover that the the water, that sorry, the wine is starting to run out, and so Jesus is called upon to do his first miracle. But I wonder how you think of Jesus, because that is how a lot of people think of Jesus. Very quiet, very meek, very pale. And a bit insipid, really. But we're talking about Jesus in party mode. (coughs) Because this was a wedding. And this was a party. And Jesus liked parties. Jesus did more teaching when he was sitting down and having food with people. Or going around to somebody's house. Than he did when he was standing in a synagogue or a temple preaching. In fact, most of the time, when Jesus was out having fun with people, he was quite encouraging and quite positive to people. And when Jesus had to be stuck in a place like this, he got really annoyed with people. He, he didn't like the kind of people that thought that religion was something that you had to do just for a couple of hours on a Sunday, and then you had the rest of the week off. He didn't like the kind of people that thought that everything had to be done rigidly in a, in, a, in a specific way and you had to look as holy as you could and dress in a holy way and, and behave and, and say the right words. He wanted real people living real lives. <coughs> and he wanted to meet with people in their real lives. He w- and he would meet with them whether it was in their house and having a meal with them whether it was on the side of a hill talking to them, whether he was out in a boat, but he, as he was walking along, he would meet with people where they were. And Jesus loved people. Jesus was a real people person. He loved social interaction. Yeah, he had times when he just wanted to get away from everybody, when he had to go and spend private time with God. But he didn't sacrifice the time with people because he wanted to spend the time with God. You know, we can, it can be quite easy as a Christian to want to spend so much time with God that you shut yourself off from people. That you want to just, you love God so much. And that's great you love God and it's really good. And you should love God and you should spend time with God. And you should spend time alone with God and you should enjoy his presence. And it's great to come here on a Sunday with other like-minded people and be able to praise and worship God. But you also need to be spending time 
with people where they are, living a real life, because that's what Jesus did. <coughs> there's, a, there's a great quote in my, my favorite quote in the, in the book by Terry Virgo is, he says that in John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life abundantly, not that you ha- I, I have not come that you may have meetings and meetings abundantly. And, you know, we can, <coughs> it's very easy for us to get so involved in the work of the church that, that all we do is give meetings after meetings after meetings. We never have any time for fun. We never have any time to spend with each other. We never have any time to spend with everybody else that we can come across. And that's not what Jesus is about. <coughs> Jesus had a great opportunity to perform his first ever miracle in the temple, in front of everybody else. You know, the, the, we learn that after his baptism, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he goes off into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, Satan comes to tempt him. And at one point, Satan takes him up to the highest point of the temple and says, if you're God, if you trust God, jump off of here, because you know it says in the Bible... That, that the Father will send his angels to catch you so you will not strike your feet on a stone. And that would have been a fantastic opportunity. You know, Jerusalem would have been thronging with people. The temple would have been full. Jesus could have jumped off the top of the temple in front of hundreds, maybe thousands of people and got caught by angels. And that would have dramatically demonstrated his power and his authority to loads of people. But he chose not to do that. Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding when there were people around having fun, living life, not being religious. <coughs> and that's because Jesus liked to have fun and he liked to be with people. And you know, we need to remember that the miracle he did was turning water into wine, not wine into water. You know, my... um. My great-granddad, he grew up in a, in a brethren church. And because of that, he wasn't allowed to have alcohol. In fact, he, um, he, wasn't even, he never even drank tea or coffee. Because tea, or, tea and coffee had caffeine in it, which was seen as a stimulant. And this was unholy. Now, he grew up in rural Dorset. So there was always a small barrel of cider hidden behind a curtain in the bathroom where no one would find it because, you know, that's made of apples and that's natural and God couldn't really dislike cider. But, um, <coughs> but he had to hide it behind the curtain in the bathroom so that if anyone from church came around, they didn't see it. Um, but, you know, we can, we can very easily think that Jesus is all about being pure and holy. And there we... Purity and holiness are to be pursued. We are, we are to try to be holy because he is holy, but we are to live real life. And Jesus chose to turn water into wine because what he wanted was for people to enjoy the party. <coughs> but it wasn't just any party. It was a wedding. And you know, God loves weddings. And God loves marriage. 
Now these days, as we all know, weddings and marriage don't mean the same thing in this country as they did a few years ago. There are attempts to redefine what it means to fit in with, um, with what are now cultural norms. Um, I don't know. If any of you were out in Bournemouth yesterday afternoon, you'll have seen the great festival atmosphere there was for the born free. But, you know, we live in a, we live in a changing society where cultural norms are really shifting sand. What, what, what is acceptable and normal 10 years ago is different from what's acceptable and normal now and probably will be different again in 10 years' time. <coughs> but, you know, God doesn't change. And God invented interpersonal relationships. God made man and woman. And because of that, he gets to say what happens in interpersonal relationships. Um, part of my job is signing documents that are going abroad. And a big area of my work is that I do... Quite often, I am in the offices of some of the big, the really big companies in Poole and Bournemouth. And very often, the department I probably go into the most in any of those companies is are the departments that are protecting their intellectual property. If you own a, if you own a product and you invent it and you make it, then you can register the patent of it. And that gives you control over who can and cannot make that product or who can and cannot use that logo that you use. And, and I spend a lot of time in those departments because if you do own a particular brand, then it is really, really important to your company that you and only you can make it. And you and only you can say who can use that brand, who can use that marketing material, who can do it. You can license it, you can control it. And as well as the department that does all the licensing, the other part of the department that I deal with is a department that is full of really aggressive lawyers who spend their entire working lives taking court action against people they think are breaching their intellectual property and trying to stop people, particularly in the Far East and in India, from rebranding inferior products under the name that has got such good prestige. <coughs> Um, I discovered this week, actually, as part of that, that actually the funding for Lush in Poole to set up the company came because Mark Constantine, who set the company up, used to work for Body Shop, and he was one of their inventors, and he invented loads of the Body Shop products. But when he left Body Shop, he sold the rights to, his, to the, the products he'd invented to Body Shop so they could make it themselves. And the money he got from that was the money he used to start Lush. Because if you are the inventor, then you get to say who can do what with it. And God is the inventor of marriage. And God is the inventor of interpersonal relationships. And because of that, he gets to say what is okay and what is not okay. And what God says is okay as a context for marriage and as a context for sex, is lifelong, committed, one man, one woman 
one flesh. That is God's pattern. That is what he has set down. And that is what is acceptable to him. These days we live in a society that says, I don't feel that though. That's not who I am. But in the immortal words of Skunk and Nancy, just because it feels good doesn't make it right. Nobody else is going to know what I'm talking about with that, but there we go. Um, <coughs> just because it feels good doesn't make it right. God still gets to dictate what happens, whether it's how you feel or it's not how you feel. And actually, you know, the whole area of marriage and of sex is a big struggle, not just in our society, but in our churches. It is hard, God's teaching. It is tough to stick to that rule that says that the only acceptable place for sex and sexual feelings is within a committed one-man, one-woman marriage. That is difficult. That's difficult when you're single because you still have feelings, but you have to find a way to live with them. That is difficult if you're gay because you have feelings and you've got to find a way to live with them. It's even difficult when you are married sometimes to just remember that the only acceptable person you can look at in that way is your husband or wife because there's lots. Society is chucking stuff at you all the time. It's very easy to become distracted. It's very easy to take your eye off the ball. It's very easy to be led astray, even in your thought life. And that's, you know, um, you know sometimes people think that, well, with the New Testament, think life got a lot easier. That it's a lot easier to, when you're not having to try and follow all these rules. But when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the way Jesus talks, and he says, you know, <laughs> it is written, you shall not commit adultery. Right, we all know what that means. That's nice, that's safe, we can stick to that rule. And Jesus said, I say, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery with her. That moves the goalposts massively. That's a much higher standard of behavior. And, you know, and we live in a society where it's really hard to stick to those values because actually society's values fit much more comfortably with how we feel and who we are. Society's values fit much more with our natural inclinations. So it's much easier to go with the lower standards. But God has set his standard, and we, if we want to follow him, we have to listen to what he says, and we have to meet his standards, or do our best to do so, because he gets to set the standards, because he is God. And we need to endeavor, strive to meet those standards. But how do we do it? How do we cope with temptation? How do we cope with our feelings, you know? If, if I am married and I've got an attractive woman at the office who seems to like me, how do, I, how do I deal with that? If I'm gay and I just can't find it in myself to be in any way interested in someone of the opposite sex, but I find people of my own sex attractive, how, c- how can I still come to church on a Sunday? How can I cope with that? And the answer is twofold. Firstly, you need to get people with you to help you. 
If you have problems in any area, and I, I've been talking specifically about sexual temptation, but it might, that might not be your issue. Your issue might be that you struggle with anger, that you have a really short fuse, and that you really have problems with being angry all the time. That might be what your issue is. It might be pride, that you know that you can have a very overinflated view of yourself, and that pride is a real issue for you, that you, you struggle to be humble. It might be greed, that you know that, that material things are really important to you and you're struggling to find a way to let go. Then find people who, you can, help you, who can help you with that. I really encourage you to try and, yes, go to life groups. That's really important. Get a group of people around you. But sometimes even that isn't in-depth enough because it can be awkward if there's, you know, 10 or 15 people in a room to be completely open about what you're really struggling with. I mean, it's great if you can. That is fantastic. But try and, if that is too awkward, then, and it might, it might be that it's easy for you and really awkward for the other people. But um, <coughs> try and get maybe one or two other people who you can meet with on a regular basis who you can be completely open with about what you are struggling with and get them to help you to pray for you to talk to you you'll probably find that if you're talking to somebody else and you're being completely open and, and you're sharing your heart with them about what you're struggling with almost certainly they're struggling with something as well and you can help them it doesn't have to be a kind of teacher-pupil type thing where you are, you're looking up to one person and they're looking down on you. It, it can be a mutual support. But that's really good to get that human support. God made churches families for a reason. God did not intend any, any believer to just struggle on completely on their own all the time. He meant us to be together as a family, helping each other, supporting each other, to use a different analogy, like a body where the foot is helping the hand to get there and the hand is helping the food to get into the mouth and the mouth is chewing it up to, to give strength to the muscles. You know, we're meant to be working together. And that's working together as a huge corporate group, but also working together on a much smaller, more intimate basis, helping and supporting each other. But also, most importantly, turn to God. Ask Him for His help. I know I was... We have this really encouraging passage. It's from Hebrews chapter 4. It says, for we do not... And I should say the context of this is just a couple of verses before. It talks about the word of God being a two-edged sword that divides between joint and marrow. And actually says, nothing is hidden from God. Everything, every thought and deed you have is naked and exposed before the eye of God. But then... Because that's terrifying. He says, but we do, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Whatever your area of temptation is, whatever it is that you're struggling with, Jesus knows and understands because he had something similar. It's not saying he had something identical. You know, it might be your problem is internet pornography. Jesus didn't have to deal with internet pornography. 
but he did have to deal with sexual temptation, which is at the result, which is at the root of your problem. You know, Jesus was a single man. He got to the age of 33 by the time he was crucified. Jesus struggled with sexual temptation. You know, Jesus struggled with loneliness. Jesus struggled with rejection. I says, in that culture, it would actually have been quite odd to have got to that old and not got married. He'd have been seen as strange for that. In fact, it may even have felt quite awkward going to the wedding in Cana in Galilee because, you know, going to weddings, you know what it's like at weddings if you're a single person. Everyone's looking at you going like, oh, well, you'll be next then. <laughs> and I'm sure that Jesus had that. I'm sure probably even at that wedding there were people making comments to him about that kind of thing, you know. Or maybe even people making comments that, you know, when he wasn't listening about the fact, well, 33, hasn't got married yet, turned up with a bunch of other guys. Yeah. <laughs> His poor mother. What can you say? Um, <laughs> but uh, mind you, you know how he started. She was no better than she should have been either. <laughs> so, um, but you know, we have a high priest, this Jesus, who is, who is not unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses because he endured them all as well, but did not sin. So Jesus knows what it is like to be in your shoes, to feel the struggles that you feel, but he also knows how to overcome it because he managed to, he managed to do it. And you know, we, are, we are human. We will fail. We we will not attain in this life the entire perfection of Jesus. But hallelujah, his righteousness is credited to us. In God's eyes, we are as pure and perfect as he is. But in practical terms, we will struggle with things and we will fail. So it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so even that, recognizing we will have a time of need. We will need mercy. We will need grace. And when we're struggling, we know that we can boldly approach God's throne and seek his mercy for our failings, his grace for our weaknesses, and his strength to enable us to overcome. Because God is serious about us. God loves us. And you know, it's not insignificant that God, that Jesus chose to do his, his miracle at a wedding because God loves marriages. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong if you are single. It doesn't mean that you're cursed by God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong and dysfunctional about you. Approximately a third of everybody in a church will be single at any one time. For various reasons, people who haven't married yet, people who've married and their marriages have failed, people who've been widowed, you know, we need as a church to be working with our single people and building them up as much as we do with our married couples. I really encourage you, with, you know, Vicky was sharing about the Vine Dine-In, please, 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 if you are a single person, don't think that you can't go along. Please come along. You probably need to be part of a group and be welcomed in 
more than some of the couples who've got each other. And <coughs> we want to value you as well. We want you to know that you're not just seen as half of something because you are a complete person in your own right. And God has purposes for us all in whatever situations we find ourselves in. But God loves marriage because marriage is a picture of his relationship with his bride, the church. You know, very often we can um, talk about uh, marriages. We, we mention the passage from Ephesians 5 about wives obey your husbands as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the, the wife, and that husbands love your wives and lay down your lives as Christ laid down his life. And we, we think of that in terms of the human relationship, but the whole point that Paul is making in Ephesians 5 is actually there is a much bigger, a much more important, a much more powerful heavenly relationship that we've got to look at when we're looking at human relationships. Because the church is the bride of Christ. And we are to be, we are part of that. If you are part of the church, you are part of the beloved bride. And just like, you know, I, when I got married, Sue came in to the, the Father's Song, that, that chorus of Father's Song. And, you know, I still can't hear the opening bars of that song without getting a little tingle and a little flashback to that feeling of nervousness, of standing facing towards the front of the church and knowing that she was coming at the back and just sort of looking over my shoulder to see what it was, to see what she was going to look like, to see what the dress looked like, to see what her hair was like and everything. And you know, that is how Christ feels about his church. He is so excited about us. He loves us so much. And he is so committed to us because, you know, a marriage is not like any other relationship that you enter into. Another part of my job, I, I deal with people buying and selling houses and there are, you know, you sign contracts when you're going to buy and sell a house and there are, there are consequences to that. But, you know, a marriage is much more than a legal document. It's much more than a legal relationship. It, it speaks of a covenant relationship an unbreakable relationship. You know, God, throughout the Old Testament, made covenants with the people of Israel. And they were completely unfaithful and continue to be completely unfaithful because they're humans and we are unfaithful. But God never renounces his side of the covenant. And when you get married, you, you take those vows where you say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do us part. At that point, you are committing forever, for everything that happens, all the stuff you don't know, all the unpredictable stuff, the really fantastic things that are going to happen that you had no idea it was ever going to be that good, and the, the totally devastating bits. And you are committing to go through them both. And we are, we are weak human beings and we fail and therefore marriages fail because people fail and break their, their vows. But you know, God, when he makes a covenant promise, 
He never fails. He never breaks his side of the covenant, however unfaithful the other side is. And God wants that covenant relationship with us. That's why when, when Jesus was with his disciples for that very last time and he took the bread and the wine and he talked about this as being the new covenant, the new unbreakable promise relationship between God and his people, the church, that he would never go back on and never renounce because God believes in marriage and he believes in marriages and God believes most of all in the love he has for his people. And in Revelation, we learn that at the culmination of time, when Christ returns again and calls him people to himself, there's going to be an immense party, a fantastic celebration. But it's not just going to be any kind of a fantastic celebration. It's not just going to be a party and a knees up. It's a very special type of party. In Revelation 19.6, it says, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. The culmination of human history is going to be a wedding feast because that is the point at which Christ, the bridegroom, takes his bride, the church, into his arms and for all eternity they are unbrokenly united through the whole of the rest of eternity on a with a new heaven and a new earth. And if you are part of the body of the church, if you have received Jesus as your saviour, then you are promised a seat at that table. Your name is already there. I don't know if it'll be one of those little folded up bits of card, but you know, your name is already written and is placed on that table. And you are promised a seat there. If you are not part of the body of Christ, if you have not received Christ as your saviour, then you're on that train I was talking about earlier that's running out of track. But now, today, is the time at which you could say, I want to be there. I want to be at that party. I want to be part of it. I want to receive Christ as my saviour. To do that, you have to accept that he as the maker gets to set the rules from then on. That you give up your rights to decide what is right and wrong and you accept his version. But the promise is the rewards will greatly outweigh the price. But it's not just about being religious. It's about that ongoing, lifelong relationship like 
when you marry somebody, you commit to them for the whole of life, to spend the rest of your life with them. And that is the commitment you make when you turn to Jesus. That he's not just going to be something for a Sunday morning. That Jesus is not just for Christmas. Jesus is for life. But life in all its fullness. Thank you, Paul. Uh, let's, let's stand. Thank you that you are the Lord God, strong and mighty. And Jesus, you are the center of it all. And Father God, I pray we will go uh, this week uh, filled with faith and expectation, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless each one of us this week and that we would uh, be blessed from you, God, and be a blessing. Father God, I pray, uh, help us to have a good rest of the day in the sunshine and enjoy uh, friends and family as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone, for coming. As you can smell, there's coffee and tea brewing. And uh, have a good rest of the day. And uh, if you would like to come and speak to me uh, or Paul uh, about anything with respect today, please do come and speak to us as well. Thank you, everyone.